but your uh, will that comes out of my mouth that that I would speak um, faithfully to the word and and to what um, you intend for us in it in Christ's name, Amen. I uh, ooh. I uh, am reading a book and I have been for for several months. I uh, I those of y'all who don't know me, I I have the attention span of you know a hummingbird. Um, and, and so it's hard for me to do things all at once. And so I, I found a book that I had picked up in college and faked my way through like I hadn't read it. Um, but I wrote a paper on it that did very well. Um, so what do you know? Um, I, uh, I, I found this book going through, going through some shelves, and I thought, well, this looks interesting. Maybe I should finally read this. It's only been, I don't know, 20 years, 18, 19 years. Um, and, and so I, I picked it up and I started in on it and, and I've really enjoyed it and I, I uh, actually talked Michael into taking it next and, and I said I'll be done with it by the end of the week. That's been, what, three months? Um, <laughs> that's pretty bad, isn't it? Um, but I, I am progressing very slowly. Uh, we went to an Astros game. I read a whole chapter. Um, <laughs> But, but um, the, the book is written by a, a fellow who is, he's an English fellow, and he was a missionary in India, and he, uh, he he's, you know, was in India for decades, and he came back to the States, and he, he wrote, like, this book is on um, mission work, but specifically, he wrote about not mission work to India, but mission work to um, the place, the one mission field in the world that has had the least amount of success in the last century, actually two centuries, which is the West. Um, like, like folks who do missions work or go out and preach the gospel, um, the places where they have the least amount of success right now is, is here um, in the United States, which is sort of a funny thing if you think about it because, like, you know, there's a guy in Iran right now who's been sitting in prison for months and months and months for preaching there, and there's a guy in North Korea who was caught carrying a Bible. He was an American. He was caught carrying a Bible. I think he was arrested. He's been in jail for months. And they're having more success in those places than they are in the States. Um, or we literally have three, I, I read it the other day, it's like 3.3 Bibles for every person in this country. Um, like, like, it's just not successful here. And one of the things this guy talks about, he talks about um, quite a few things, actually. It's a very interesting book. But, but one of the things he talks about is the tendency we have in our country to sectionalize our lives, right? Like, it's actually all of the West. We... We create chunks of our lives that do not touch each other and don't interfere with each other and shouldn't, like, cross over into each other, and we just create compartments. And, and some people, like, have a work compartment and a family compartment, and, you know, and they've got these compartments, and they live in different places, and they put it away when they come home um, so that they don't have to worry about work, and they, you know, they, that's what they do. Um, and it's, it's created a real challenge because people oftentimes have a spiritual department, Right? And it's this part of me, and, you know, that I do this then, and then I'm done. Or I'm spiritual, but not religious, meaning that I'm, you know, I think about it sometimes, and that's my box, right? But it doesn't interfere with anything else because it's in that box, right? I I tried to do that with my kids a few years ago, or actually earlier this year, where I said, well, we're going to sort all your toys, and we're going to put them in separate boxes, and we're going to try and keep them in the boxes they belong in so that you can play with the toys that go together. And so, like, we have all of these um, um, toys that are in sets. Like, like Titus has these blocks that go with this special thing, and he pushes the block down, and inside the block will be, like, a cow, and it will make cow noises. 
you know, and, and so we got all those together, and, and I, I fought with everybody in the family for almost two whole months, making sure everything stayed in the right boxes, like the, the monkeys stayed in the barrel, and the, the board game stayed together, and all of these boxes, and I kept it up for months, and then finally I recognized that I was, I was a little Dutch boy with my finger in the dam, you know, and that one day that was, it was just not possible to maintain it. Um, I could have juggled the children themselves easier. Um, and, and so, you know, like, like it's just, it's, it's, it's silliness to think you can keep things in boxes apart. Does that make sense? And it, it is the truth of our lives. You cannot separate um, the really important things forever because it will decay who you are. Um, and, and we'll get into that, but what we're looking at, we're still in Nehemiah, um, and we're in part 12, which is chapters 11 and 12. Um, this is a huge chunk of the book, and we're not doing all of it. Everybody cheer. Um, the, the, the tricky part is we're at the end, and there's a lot of genealogy, right? Anybody ever go to a graduation, and you have to wait through every name? Well, not here. There's, what, like eight names. But like <laughs> when I graduated from high school, I remember there was like 300 names, and there were 500 names or something, and you're sitting there. It's like, man, I didn't like these people when I went to school with them. Now I've got to listen to everybody's name before I can leave. You know, and, and as a youth pastor, I would be invited to graduations. I think, oh, man, those are like a 1,000 kids in your school. I don't want to do that. You know, like, no way. Or Notre Dame. We had a friend who got a doctorate from Notre Dame. We didn't go. Jeez, like 10,000 people. It would have been all day. Um, so we're, we're reaching that part of the book where there's a lot of names, and we're going to jump over some of that. I'm going to summarize it because I, I, I don't like the idea of just jumping over. Can you bump me ahead, hon? My slides aren't working. Um, real quick, some background. Oops. I went two at once there. All right. Book so far. First part of the book concentrates on rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Everybody got that? Um, they built a wall because you need a wall in the ancient world to keep people from burning your sitting down and taking your stuff. Right? If you didn't have a wall, it was kind of embarrassing. Um, they then transition. The wall is done, and Nehemiah, who is like the governor... Um, focuses on rebuilding the people, and there's a big religious revival and um, um, just all sorts of things that take place in that regard, and he starts investing in the people. Um, now that we're kind of coming to the end of that, he comes back to the wall, which is kind of weird. Um, he's done all of this stuff with the people, and, and then the book comes back to the wall, and, and we're going to talk about why a little later, but, but like we get to the dedication of the wall, which is sort of the end of chapter 12. Um, chapter 11, real quick, there were not many folks living in the city, right? It was a big empty city um, um, because there was, well, no one living there. It wasn't a very nice place. And so like now that it's been rebuilt, they have to start pulling people in. And so they gather up all of the communities, the leaders, and they start casting lots. It's a little like flipping a coin. Everybody got it? Um, and they picked one out of every ten people, and they said, all right, guys, you're moving into the capital. And so these folks left their homes, and they left their businesses, and they left everything else, and they moved into the capital and started over with a new life. Because if you've got a city without any people, what's the point? Right? Um, if you have free time later today, there are cities in China. You can Google them. Um, where they, they have all this money flowing in, and so they've built enormous cities that are completely empty. You know, they'll have like a like a 500-unit apartment building with, like, three people living in it, you know. And, and I mean, it's insane. There's huge cities because they just have too much money, and they don't know what to do with it, so they build cities, and nobody lives in them, and it's kind of pointless, and they'll degrade and eventually fall apart and 
you know, it'll have been wasted money. Um, so they're selecting these new residents. Um, there are some important things that come up. We learn that some of these guys are brave. We learn that some of them are, have integrity. Like we have all sorts of things attached to them. Um, some of them are given the job of being guards. Some of them given the job of being like, like in the army. Some of them, you know, they, they come in and like the text tells us all kinds of cool stuff about them, but it's about, I don't know, 300 names, which is why I'm not standing up here torturing you with mispronouncing Hebrew names all morning. Um, the first half of chapter 12 is all about reestablishing the temple. Okay, so they have rebuilt the core of the people. They've gotten them wound up about, like, following God again. And they start bringing more folks in, right, because it's easier to do it with a smaller group of people. So they get these people focused and invested and growing spiritually. And then they start bringing more people in so that that can spread, right? Um, and they start reestablishing temple services. This is kind of crazy. The temple is the center of their religion, right? Sacrifices, the whole nine yards, everything takes place in the temple. Um, in fact, there was a huge crisis in the Jewish community when the temple disappeared. They said, well, what do we do now? We don't have a temple. How do we sacrifice to God? How do we do this? How do we do that? And they couldn't. And so, like, the Jewish faith changed. And there's a, like, if you get a lot of time, which we don't today, um, that actually is the beginning of the changes in the Jewish faith that made it possible for Jesus to show up the way he did and impact the world the way he did. If the temple had never been destroyed, Jesus never would have showed up. Or, well, he would have showed up. It would have been a very different thing. So God used their destruction to prepare the way for Jesus, right? Which, by the way, there's a line in the Old Testament. Most of you all have heard it. I know the plans that I have for you. Everybody heard this one? Some of you all maybe have it on a coffee mug. I know the plans I have for you, plans to do you good, not to harm you. Um, and you see people like do sermons. Well, this is, means that you can go out and start your business or whatever you want, and God will be right behind you. Actually, Jeremiah wrote that. Um, God told him to tell the people, hey, you know what? Most of you are going to be killed when the invading army comes in, but don't worry. <laughs> I know the plans I have for you, and it's going to work out. It's actually the verse that precedes them getting their, their, their backsides kicked thoroughly. Right? Because God can take brokenness, he can take awful stuff, and he can turn it into something good. And he does it with the disappearing of the temple. And as we dive into the last half of this chapter, we're going to see how that has impacted the people. Got it? Everybody still with me? I haven't put anyone to sleep yet. If you talked, you're still awake, so don't give me that nonsense. Um, so they, they start preparing the temple services um, kind of as an afternote to getting the folks excited about following God again. And we jump into chapter 12, and they dedicate the wall, right? This is a little like breaking a bottle on a ship. Um, the wall is built. The doors are hung. They have been there for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. He did not bother dedicating the wall until after he got the people going, Right? There's a reason for that. It is easy to rest in security, isn't it? If I have a big enough bank account sitting behind me, I can be comfortable because no matter what happens, I'm all right. Uh, my wife and I have a GOK fund. It's a certain amount of money we keep in savings just in case something goes wrong so we can look at it and say, gee, okay, we'll pay to fix that. Gee, okay, you know, because we've got it. And it's our security blanket, right? From a place of security, it's easy Ultimately, um, Nehemiah did not want these people to rest in the wall as their security. Do you understand me? 
the things that we think make us secure do not. Um, Our money, our nice houses, our technology, our everything, everything, none of that stuff makes us secure. None of it. Um, Ultimately, it's only God and only God's hand on us. And even as rotten stuff happens, um, our security in the midst of the storm is knowing that God is in control and that God is watching, and that God is walking alongside us, and that God is taking care of us. So even in the worst of circumstances or the best of circumstances, what it comes down to is God's intervention and God's hold on our lives. Everybody with me? And so he invests in the people and makes sure that they are looking to God and that they're living out their faith before he comes back and says, okay, now let's dedicate the wall, right? They're dedicating a wall, Well, we'll get back to that in a second. There's kind of a bit of silliness to it, but we'll get to it in a second. Uh, 27 to 29, I'm not going to read Hebrew names today, so I'm sorry if you were looking forward to hearing it, uh, but they are on the screen. Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres, lyres, So the sons of the singers were assembled um, from the districts around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Neophytes and the Beth Gilgal and all their fields in Geba and Azavamath. I did anyway. For the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. So they had all of these folks who were in the business of, like, doing God's work. They were pastors. And they had spread out to the communities around them, and they had set up shop because... If all of the ministers in the world live at the temple, what happens to the people? Well, they don't know God for sure, right? And so, like, these folks, they spread out. They did exactly what the the scripture said. Like, the Levites were supposed to go out, and they were supposed to do God's business in the communities. And so they're out there, and they bring them in. Um, They pull them all into the temple area, or into the city, and they start the process of, like, dedicating this wall. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates, and the wall. Now, this is a big deal. Watch this. Um, In the Old Testament, we have where folks will approach places where God manifests, right? Like, so you would have the Ark of the Covenant, and they would offer sacrifices on it, and when, when God would speak to Moses, he would literally, his glory would be manifest on the Ark of the Covenant, right? And so if you walked up and touched the ark where God's presence showed up, what would happen to you? You would die, right? Um, If you opened it, all kinds of terrible things would happen. Lots of people would die. Literally 5,000 people died like one day when they opened the ark. Hey, let's see what's in it. They popped it open and they faced the, the Ten Commandments, the broken law, like without the mercy seat, which is they would pour the blood of sacrifice, like for mercy for, from God. So they took God's mercy away and they said, let's check out that law. And everybody was killed. For a great illustration of it, Indiana Jones is pretty biblical. I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, it is a great movie. Um, <laughs> they also purified the people, the gates and the wall. So they're preparing to approach God and they prepare by purifying themselves this could have been like fasting this could have been like abstaining from marital relations it could have been um like ritual washing um some of the ceremonial services that they did at this time eventually became baptism like the baptism we celebrate has its roots in that where like they would literally dunk themselves and come out like washed right and it would be part of entering the temple um 
But this is what they did. They prepared themselves by washing up. The reason for that is that God is pure, right? God is holy. God is clean. God is perfect. He is so much so that to approach him, literally his holiness is almost like a burning fire, right? And it consumes things that aren't what they're supposed to be. Um, I had a, years and years ago, I bought a, an iron skillet. You all have one of these? You know how you clean an iron skillet the first time? My wife told me. Like, because like I found this thing. I think I found it, literally found this iron skillet. And I, I cleaned it the first time by building a giant fire in my backyard and tossing it in and walking away. <laughs> and anything that was germy, anything that was impure, anything that wasn't supposed to be on that pot or on that iron skillet, it was gone when that was done, right? Because fire consumes. God's holiness consumes. And so these folks washed up before they approached God because God's holiness consumes uncleanliness. In the time of the Old Testament, it letter, generally meant death. You approach God and you were unclean, you were in trouble. Um, we see in Christ something very different. Jesus is walking through a crowd of folks and a woman who had been unclean for like 12 years approaches him and touches him and then her uncleanliness, like she touches him and she's made clean because Jesus was so, like he was holy, he couldn't be made unclean by unclean coming into contact with him, but like he was God incarnate and so like literally his holiness made her clean, which is what we all do, right? When, when I approach Jesus, I'm not made clean because I'm awesome and good and well-behaved. I am made clean because Jesus' holiness makes me clean. His death for me makes me clean, right? So there's a bit of a role reversal. I just wanted to touch on it. I thought it was worth noting. These folks washed up before the ceremony so they could be clean before God. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall uh, toward the refuse gate, ho Shaniah. And half the leaders of Judah followed them with these guys and some of the son of the priests with trumpets and Zechariah, the son of Jonathan and the son of that guy and his son and his son and the son of that guy and the son of I'm just not reading names. I'm sorry, guys. It takes forever and I'm not very good at it. Um, These guys came along with musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe, went before them at the fountain gate and they went directly up the steps of the city of David by the stairways of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. So basically, they put the choir on top of the wall. We think about walls, we think, you know, a foot thick. This is nine feet thick, right? This wall could have a road built on it. Um, and these guys, they start singing and they start worshiping and they go east, right? And they walk around on the top of the wall and they sing. And like basically they're worshiping God because he's brought them security. um, Because God has given them this wall. Because he's restored them as a people. Right? Um, How many of y'all have walls on your house? Pretty common? How many of y'all have walls around your house in spots? Or gates or fences? Any of y'all ever dedicate your fences because you're glad God's keeping the cows in? And we don't really do that, right? Anybody thank God they get to go out and do posts? That's a job, right? You know, put put out new fence posts? Like, we don't generally thank God we get to do that kind of thing. I mean, my father-in-law was here. I think he thanked God he got to do fence posts because he was not in Texas. Um, 
So these guys, they do their worship service. They walk around one way. Um, and then the second choir proceeding to the left while I followed them with half of the people on the wall um, above the tower furnaces to the broad wall above the gate of Ephraim and by the old gate by the fish gate, the tower of Henanel and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate. And they stopped at the gate of the guard. So the other choir goes the other way. And what they're doing, right, is they're singing back and forth. Everybody got it? It was a worship style that David established in in you know, the book of Kings, like David or Samuel, sorry, we, we see where David establishes this style of worship where one choir sings and the other sings back. Everybody with me? So now if you're singing from one side of the city to the other, like, it's loud. Any of y'all ever, like, go to vacation Bible school and you do the um, hallelujah, 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 and then the other side says... Exactly. And the objective, I remember being a kid, I didn't know what either of those words meant, but I knew I was supposed to yell as loud as I possibly could, right? And these guys are are literally singing so loud um, that they can hear each other across the way. And they're praising God, walking on this wall, thanking God that he's brought them this wall. It's a wall. Um. Am I, oh, there it went, oh, no, I think it's, all right, um, I knew it. <laughs> Can you bump me back, honey? Am I there? Uh, then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God, so they got off the wall, they came to the temple, so did I and half the officials with me, with the priests, these guys, um, who had trumpets, and these other guys, um, and the singers sang with Jezariah, uh, their leader, and on the day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced, so that the shout, or so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. So they gathered in the temple and they offered sacrifices and they sang, right? And they sang so loud that the neighboring communities heard them. This is roughly akin to us singing so loud that Loma hears it. I've heard that sometimes when you know, the guys who are worshiping this morning get going like it's pretty loud. But I don't think Loma's hearing it. Are they? Probably not. Um, it's possible that it was that loud. It's also possible that it was so reported that folks spread out and they told each other. And they're like, wow, Jerusalem's pretty happy. They have a wall. Um, <laughs> so let's jump into this. What do we do with this? Right? Like it goes on. It tells us who manned the storerooms and how they ran the temple and how they collected tithes. That's the end of chapter 12, but what do we do with it? We've basically heard the story of the dedication of a wall. Um, the Jewish people had grown to a point where they no longer saw God as living in a separate compartment from the rest of their lives. Everybody with me? There was kind of this practice in the ancient world that you dealt with the pagans. They would deal with God as a trade-off for making everything else work. Got it? They would sacrifice animals, and God would send rain. They would sacrifice you know, their first fruits, and God would take care of their kids. God would do this in exchange for us doing that. And there was sort of this like tit-for-tat, and the relationship they had with their gods, the pagans, was one of, hey, we do this and you do it. It's an agreement. And they were okay with jumping between gods because, like, well, maybe this God will work out better for us. It's like hitting a different supermarket, right? Um, the Jewish people's attitude is different. Um, from this point forward, we see where their faith becomes a part of absolutely everything they did. Um, 
when they dedicated a wall, they looked and they said, this is a military unit. They said, this is God's wall, right? We're protected because God is with us. When they had kids, they were God's kids. When they raised crops, they were God's crops. They looked at everything. They had reached a point in their lives where everything was a part of worshiping God, right? Where the temple was still the center, but the temple wasn't it because their everyday lives were this, it was literally this communion with God. Um, This is a fantastic thing for a couple of reasons. First off, it's because it's where God is sending us. Where, where when Jesus shows up, we see where this is what God intended for us all along. Um, we were never intended to go to church on Sunday and forget about it. Everybody with me? Showing up and sitting and listening to me talk for 45 minutes and yawning and pretending to still be awake. Um, most of y'all don't do that, I know. Um, but, but doing that is not like this penance you do for having sin in your life, right? Like this is preparation for worshiping God everywhere else, right? Um, The hardest lesson I've learned over and over again in the years that I've been married, um, the hardest lesson I've learned is that washing dishes is a way of worshiping God. Like, you're never going to hear me say, thank God I get to stick my hands in this dishwater. Thank God I get to stay up an extra 30 minutes to make sure the dishes are done before I go to bed, right? Like, I don't want to worship God at those moments, but... When I do these things, I represent Jesus to my family, don't I? Um, My wife hates washing dishes more than she hates anything, right? Can I get an amen, honey? (laughs) Um, My wife hates, and when I do this, when I serve her in this way, I show her what it means to love and serve, right? Like doing dishes is part of me being a godly man, which sounds silly, right? But it's the truth of it. When I show up to work, it's easy for me. I work in the church, right? Um, but when I show up to work, when I work in the yard, when I visit with folks at the grocery store picking up groceries, when I go to the fair and hang out and talk with folks there, when I do things, everything I do should be an expression of who I am in Jesus. The reason is because we're like athletes in training. I ate seven Oreos for breakfast. Can anybody beat me on that? Titus, probably... (laughs) (laughs) Like father, like son. If I was training for the Olympics, I would not be doing a very good job, right? It's a great SNL clip where they show uh, John Belushi and chocolate frosted donuts. It's like a Wheaties commercial. You're smoking a cigarette and eat. When I prepare for the Olympics, you know, I eat chocolate frosted donuts, you know, and it's not training, right? Um, Because when folks go into training, it affects everything, right? It affects how they go to bed. It affects how they get up. It affects their relationships. I read that Arnold Schwarzenegger, preparing for Mr. Universe, his father died the week before, and he skipped the funeral because he said, I have to focus on training because I'm going to win. Skipped his own dad's funeral, right? Because his sport, his training, exceeded the importance of his father's funeral. Literally, like Paul says it, right? When an athlete goes into training, everything comes under it, right? You live your life by strict orders. You live by your life by a strict standard, and you follow. Um, as believers, we train to be like Jesus. We don't train on Sunday morning. We train every day, 
We train when we get out of bed. We train when we go to, you know, eat breakfast and we thank God for what we have. We train when we deal with the jerk who lives next door and we can't stand him. I like my neighbors, but some of y'all might not. I don't know. We train when our wife makes us angry, our husband makes us angry, and we love them instead of biting their head off, right? Because, man, that should make you holy. Um, We train every day because everything is a part of following Jesus. There's not a separation, right? Um, anybody follow the news at all? I, uh, I hate talking about the news. I never do it in sermons. I'm going to break my rule for the second time since I've been here that I'm going to do it. Uh, there was a hacker thing that happened this week. Anybody see it? Uh, there's a website, ashleymadison.com, for men who are married to and women who are married to find folks to cheat on their spouse with. And so you could get an account and cheat on your spouse. Interestingly enough, there was a lawsuit filed by users a few years ago when they figured out that about 90% of the users were men. It was really hard to find someone to have an affair with when, like, there were no women. Um, And so they started making fake accounts for women, not making it up. Um, But hackers stole all these people's user data and just put it on the Internet. So these men who had been hiding these affairs, all of a sudden it was out there, right? And the first name to come to the forefront was Josh Duggar, right? Um, I don't know how many of y'all, but, like, I cringed an awful lot. I was like, oh, man, let me hear all about this from, like, my non-Christian friends. And I have. Um, At the end of the day, if we take our holiness and we take our Christian life and we put it in one box and we take our obedience to God and our sinfulness you know, like all of this stuff and put it in a separate box. Like, like, this is my part, this is your part. Like, we'll get in trouble. I talked to a pastor, my first pastor I worked for, one of the best guys I ever knew. He said, most ministers who have an affair will say, surely God will let me do this. I do so much for him, I can have this. See the boxes? Our marriage, our sex life, our relationships with the people around us, Um, our relationships with our neighbors, how we spend our money, how we think, how we act. These are all a part of the training that we go through to be like Jesus, right? This is all a part of that package. Um, God forgives, and I I pray that, you know, God will move in these people for their humiliation and that man for his humiliation. Like, like we live in, in... the care of a God of grace who knows that we sin. And so I'm not tossing them under the bus. I'm pointing it out like bad things happen when we think we can ignore our sin, right? Um, Instead, we're called to live a life of worship, literally everything. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, but only do it when you're at church. No? No? Um, (laughs) bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all this, put on love, which is is the perfect bond of unity. Um, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of God richly dwell within you. Within, with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing each other, one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, whatever you do, watch this, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. 
Um, years ago, I had a fight with a guy at work, and it was a feud that went on for months and months. And one day I decided I was going to start praying for him. And the first thing that came out like in my mind when I started praying was, what kind of Jesus does this guy see when he interacts with you? It was the last day I was fighting with that guy. And instead I spent a Saturday, like 12 hours one Saturday, I worked on his car for him. This guy chewed me out in front of the administrative board. Oh, I man. Um, and I fixed his car for him. Why? Because my job is to put on Jesus, right? Not because I'm holy, but because Jesus is holy. Not because I'm great, but because I'm striving to be like Jesus. Not because I deserve grace or forgiveness or anything else, right? But because I'm forgiven, and because I'm forgiven, I want to be like Jesus. It's my hunger um, to be like Jesus, because I'm not. Every once in a while, I'll have tell fo- folks tell me, Hey, Eric, you shouldn't talk about how rotten you are. And I try not to. Um, but I want it to be clear. If you see me doing something good, you're not seeing me, you're seeing Jesus, right? I had somebody say to me recently, Eric, I was impressed by you. I had somebody tell me that you're different from most pastors because you do stuff in the community. And I didn't say it, but I I don't remember who said it to me. If you're here today, you did not see me doing things in the community. You saw Jesus doing things in the community because I'm laying in my hammock reading a comic book. Got it? Jesus does good things despite me. Um, And that is our call. We see it in the, the, the Hebrews, right? Like they see everything is holy and they sacrifice to God as a part of like observing everything is holy. And we're in the same spot. Everything you do is holy. When you mourn because stuff is broken and you're filled like literally with, with despair and hopelessness, um, that despair and hopelessness is a time of holiness where we lean on God, where we look to him and we say, God, please take care of me. I know you're in control. Bring me comfort and help me to mourn knowing you're in control. And when we're filled with joy, it's so easy to forget God when you're happy, ain't it? It just is. When we're filled with joy, same time. Thank you, God, for what I have. Thank you, God, for what you're doing. When we're angry, we pray for folks. Why? Because holiness. Everything we do is a part of worshiping God. Everything we do is holy. There isn't a wall in the yard that keeps the neighbors from stealing from us, right? There's a sign of God's provision, and we acknowledge it as a sign of God's provision. And that's a part of how we live holy. Um, That's a tall order, isn't it? Um, Therefore, I urge you, brother, this is Romans, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul is literally saying, every day sacrifice yourself, right? And what does that mean? Does that mean I should be like, Burning myself on the front lawn? No. Right? Does that mean I shouldn't enjoy life? No. It means that I should strive to enjoy the things that God has for me, right? I don't love my neighbor. I'm not going to lie, I don't. Right? But I'm trying to stand close enough to Jesus that I become like him and learn how to love my neighbor. Because I'm great. I'm not going to talk about how bad I am, though. I try not to. Um, because, Because God is great. Um, we prove what is right by growing close to God and by demonstrating his love. 
Um, you don't do it by trying hard. You do it by following Jesus, by imitating him, by praying, by being filled with the Spirit, by standing close to somebody who's more spiritually mature than you and having them help you grow up, right? Right? Anybody learn how to drive a combine on their own? <laughs> no one sat right next to you and said, hey, pick that up, do that, do that lever. There's the on switch. There's the horn. There's the... I, I, uh, I've really enjoyed visiting the bits as they, like Larry has taught me to drive several pieces of equipment, but there is a five-hour training session for everything, right? And that's for the easy stuff. Um, the big tractor, I spent eight hours before I was allowed to sit behind the wheel of that. Eight. It was eight, wasn't it? It was a long time. Um, because if I did it myself, I would have run over their house, and that tractor could do it. Um, and nobody in their right mind would let me just jump behind the wheel of that thing, like, at all, but, like, without some training. Um, I'm watching Dusty learn to drive on the Internet, right? And uh, I'm trying not to be outside when it's happening. But Dusty is learning to drive because somebody's sitting with her and teaching her how to drive. Um, we learn by being trained. We learn by being apprenticed. Um, We learn to be like Jesus and to worship in everything by finding folks who do and learning from them, right? In the same way, Christian men who have no one to confess to, right, when they start sinning and when they start struggling, guess what's going to happen? It's going to get bigger. Mold grows in the dark, doesn't it? Mushrooms grow in the dark. We stand close to other folks so that we can confess to each other and we can lean on each other. Um, If we pretend we're perfect in front of other folks, everything will get worse. That was a side note. Even when I acknowledge my sin, even when I acknowledge my brokenness, I do it to point out God has a lot of mercy, right? And God is great and God is glorified because he has mercy on me and you. Let me keep going. I know I'm very long-winded. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name and not neglect doing good and sharing for such, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Um, there are folks who think I will please God by giving money. At the end of the day, what pleases God is a heart that loves other folks and is just like Jesus, right? Um, it's a heart that drives you to serve him in a way that is right. Men sitting in the room, this is just for the men. Look at me. It is easy for Christianity to become like these things you feel, and men tend to be uncomfortable with that. There's a huge chunk of this that faith is about living out and doing what God has called us to do. Everybody with me? I do that with my family. I do it with my neighbor. I do it with y'all. Um, we do because our hearts are there. We we do because it's part of following God. My challenge for you this week as we close up, my challenge for you is to look at your lives and ask yourself, um, what have you dedicated to God? What belongs to him? Where do you worship him in your everyday life? How do you follow him when you are driving your car, trying to cut off the guy in front of you? Like, how, how do you reflect him in everything you do? Or are you? Like, is God absent from a huge chunk of your life? Do you have boxes everywhere? Oh, that's my internet box. Don't look in there. That's my kid's box. I do what I have to do with them. That's work. God stays home. He doesn't go with me to work, right? Like, do you have boxes? And if you do have boxes, like, you think God's really okay with that? 
My challenge for you is to bring him out and put him in every box and live underneath him and to live lives that are, that are literally worship, to sacrifice daily, to look at the walls and look at the equipment and look at the car and look at the kids and look at the neighbor and recognize that all of these things are holy like because God consumes, right? His holiness spreads, and it spreads through you. You are his temples. We don't go to church because this place is holy. This is a building. You are his temple. You. And your job is to paint it up and make it look like him. Actually, not paint it up. That was a bad way to describe it. Literally, to turn it into his place. Um, Let's pray, and we will go on out and serve him. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would turn us into folks who reflect you in everything. I pray that you would... Pray that you would touch the hearts of the folks who are here and help them to break down the boxes into which they put things that that, um, sometimes they just end up being taken away from you, Lord. I pray that they would take the hidden boxes, the sinful, shameful boxes, and open them up and give them back to you, Lord, and be forgiven. I pray that they would strive together, not alone, but together to be more like you. Um, Help them to stand together. Help them to worship together and help them literally just to be lives of be people of worship where folks all around us hear and know um, where they look at us and they don't see sour-faced folks or they don't see hypocrites or they don't see you know anything else all they see is people who reflect your glory and know you and are just amazing because of it um, because you're amazing um, help folks to see you instead of us um, and let us make a noise it'll be heard in Loma and Great Falls and Kalispell and California and everywhere else, Lord, as we spread your gospel. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to close with a blessing. Ready to stand up. It's good at the end of a long sermon if you watch. The people who don't stand up are asleep. <laughs> um, may, the God, may the God who's given you everything that you have May the God who has given you grace, may the God who has given you mercy, may the God who give, loves you, literally gives you his love more than you deserve, more than even makes sense, may that God um, conform you to be like him. May he bring you to a place where you live lives of worship. In Christ's name, amen.